Chapter Sixteen, Part Three of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen Savage. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Sixteen, Part Three. Northern Chile and Peru. June twenty ninth. We gladly travelled down the valley to our former night's lodging, and thence to near the Agua Marga. On July 1st we reached the valley of Copiapo. The smell of the fresh clover was quite delightful, after the scentless air of the dry, sterile despoblado. While staying in the town, I heard an account from several of the inhabitants of a hill in the neighbourhood which they called El Bramador, the Rora or Bellower. I did not at the time pay sufficient attention to the account, but as far as I understood, the hill was covered by sand, and the noise was produced only when people, by ascending it, put the sand in motion. The same circumstances are described in detail on the authority of Zietzen and Ehrenberg, as the cause of the sounds which have been heard by many travellers on Mount Sinai near the Red Sea. One person with whom I conversed had himself heard the noise. He described it as very surprising and he distinctly stated that, although he could not understand how it was caused, yet it was necessary to set the sand rolling down the acclivity. A horse walking over coarse, dry sand causes a peculiar chirping noise from the friction of the particles, a circumstance which I several times noticed on the coast of Brazil. Three days afterwards I heard of the beagle's arrival at the port, distant eighteen leagues from the town. There is very little land cultivated down the valley. Its wide expanse, supports a wretched wiry grass which even the donkeys can hardly eat. This poorness of the vegetation is owing to the quantity of saline matter with which the soil is impregnated. The port consists of an assemblage of miserable little hovels situated at the foot of a sterile plain. At present, as the river contains water enough to reach the sea, the inhabitants enjoy the advantage of having fresh water within a mile and a half. On the beach, there were large piles of merchandise, and the little place had an air of activity. In the evening I gave my adios with a hearty good will to my companion Mariano González, with whom I had ridden so many leagues in Chile. The next morning the Beagle sailed for Iquique. July 12th. We anchored in the port of Iquique, in latitude twenty degrees twelve minutes, on the coast of Peru. The town contains about a thousand inhabitants, and stands on a little plain of sand at the foot of a great wall of rock, two thousand feet in height, here forming the coast. The whole is utterly desert. A light shower of rain falls only once in very many years, and the ravines consequently are filled with detritus, and the mountain-sides covered by piles of fine white sand, even to a height of a thousand feet. During this season of the year, a heavy bank of clouds stretched over the ocean, seldom rises above the wall of rocks on the coast. The aspect of the place was most gloomy. The little port, with its few vessels and small group of wretched houses, seemed overwhelmed and out of all proportion with the rest of the scene. The inhabitants live like persons on board a ship. Every necessary comes from a distance. Water is brought in boats from Pisagua, about forty miles northward, and is sold at the rate of nine reals, four shillings, sixpence, an eighteen-gallon cask. I bought a wine-bottle full for threepence. In like manner, firewood, and, of course, every article of food, is imported. Very few animals can be maintained in such a place. On the ensuing morning I hired with difficulty, at the price of four pounds sterling, two mules and a guide to take me to the nitrate of soda-works. These are at present the support of Inquique. 
This salt was first exported in 1830. In one year, an amount in value of one hundred thousand pounds sterling was sent to France and England. It is principally used as a manure, and in the manufacture of nitric acid. Owing to its deliquescent property, it will not serve for gunpowder. Formerly there were two exceedingly rich silver mines in this neighbourhood, but their produce is now very small. Our arrival in the offing caused some little apprehension. Peru was in a state of anarchy, and each party having demanded a contribution, the poor town of Iquique was in tribulation, thinking the evil hour was come. The people had also their domestic troubles. A short time before, three French carpenters had broken open, during the same night, the two churches, and stolen all the plate. One of the robbers, however, subsequently confessed, and the plate was recovered. The convicts were sent to Arequipa, which, though the capital of this province, is two hundred leagues distant. The government there thought it a pity to punish such useful workmen, who could make all sorts of furniture, and accordingly liberated them. Things being in this state, the churches were again broken open, but this time the plate was not recovered. The inhabitants became dreadfully enraged, and, declaring that none but heretics would thus eat God Almighty, proceeded to torture some Englishmen, with the intention of afterwards shooting them. At last the authorities interfered, and peace was established. Thirteenth. In the morning I started for the saltpetre works, a distance of fourteen leagues. Having ascended the steep coast mountains by a zigzag sandy track, we soon came in view of the mines of Guantajaya and St. Rosa. These two small villages are placed at the very mouths of the mines, and being perched up on hills, they had a still more unnatural and desolate appearance than the town of Iquique. We did not reach the saltpetre works till after sunset, having ridden all day across an undulating country, a complete and utter desert. The road was strewed with the bones and dried skins of many beasts of burden which had perished on it from fatigue. Excepting the vulture aura, which preys on the carcasses, I saw neither bird, quadruped, reptile, nor insect. On the coast mountains, at the height of about two thousand feet, where during this season the clouds generally hang, a very few cacti were growing in the clefts of rock, and the loose sand was strewed over with a lichen which lies on the surface quite unattached. This plant belongs to the genus Cladonia, and somewhat resembles the reindeer lichen. In some parts it was in sufficient quantity to tinge the sand, as seen from a distance, of a pale yellowish colour. Further inland, during the whole ride of fourteen leagues, I saw only one other vegetable production, and that was a most minute yellow lichen, growing on the bones of the dead mules. This was the first true desert which I had seen. The effect on me was not impressive, but I believe this was owing to my having become gradually accustomed to such scenes, as I rode northward from Valparaiso through Coquimbo to Copiapo. The appearance of the country was remarkable, from being covered by a thick crust of common salt, and of a stratified saliferous alluvium which seems to have been deposited as the land slowly rose above the level of the sea. The salt is white, very hard and compact. It occurs in water, worn nodules projecting from the agglutinated sand, and is associated with much gypsum. The appearance of this superficial mass very closely resembled that of a country after snow, before the last dirty patches are thawed. The existence of this crust of a soluble substance over the whole face of the country shows how extraordinarily dry the climate must have been for a long period. At night I slept at the house of the owner of one of the saltpetre mines. The country is here as unproductive as near the coast, but water, having rather a bitter and brackish taste, can be procured by digging wells. 
The well at this house was thirty-six yards deep. As scarcely any rain falls, it is evident the water is not thus derived. Indeed, if it were, it could not fail to be as salt as brine, for the whole surrounding country is encrusted with various saline substances. We must therefore conclude that it percolates underground from the Cordillera, though distant many leagues. In that direction there are a few small villages where the inhabitants, having more water, are enabled to irrigate a little land and raise hay, on which the mules and asses employed in carrying the saltpetre are fed. The nitrate of soda was now selling at the ship's side at fourteen shillings per hundred pounds. The chief expense is its transport to the sea-coast. The mine consists of a hard stratum, between two and three feet thick, of the nitrate mingled with a little of the sulphate of soda, and a good deal of common salt. It lies close beneath the surface, and follows for a length of one hundred and fifty miles the margin of a grand basin or plain. This, from its outline, manifestly must once have been a lake, or, more probably, an inland arm of the sea, as may be inferred from the presence of iodic salts in the saline stratum. The surface of the plain is three thousand three hundred feet above the Pacific. Nineteenth. We anchored in the Bay of Callao, the seaport of Lima, the capital of Peru. We stayed there six weeks, but from the troubled state of public affairs I saw very little of the country. During our whole visit the climate was far from being so delightful as it is generally represented. A dull, heavy bank of clouds constantly hung over the land, so that during the first sixteen days I had only one view of the cordillera behind Lima. These mountains, seen in stages, one above the other, through openings in the clouds, had a very grand appearance. It has almost become a proverb that rain never falls in the lower part of Peru. Yet this can hardly be considered correct, for during almost every day of our visit there was a thick, drizzling mist, which was sufficient to make the streets muddy, and one's clothes damp. This the people are pleased to call Peruvian dew. That much rain does not fall is very certain, for the houses are covered only with flat roofs made of hardened mud, and on the mole shiploads of wheat were piled up, being thus left for weeks together without any shelter. I cannot say I liked the very little I saw of Peru. In summer, however, it is said that the climate is much pleasanter. In all seasons, both inhabitants and foreigners suffer from severe attacks of ague. This disease is common on the whole coast of Peru, but is unknown in the interior. The attacks of illness which arise from miasma never fail to appear most mysterious. So difficult is it to judge from the aspect of a country, whether or not it is healthy, that if a person had been told to choose within the tropics a situation appearing favourable for health, very probably he would have named this coast. The plain round the outskirts of Callao is sparingly covered with a coarse grass, and in some parts there are a few stagnant, though very small, pools of water. The miasma, in all probability, arises from these for the town of Arica was similarly circumstanced, and its healthiness was much improved by the drainage of some little pools. Miasma is not always produced by a luxuriant vegetation with an ardent climate, for many parts of Brazil, even where there are marshes and a rank vegetation, are much more healthy than this sterile coast of Peru. The densest forests in a temperate climate, as in Chile, do not seem in the slightest degree to affect the healthy condition of the atmosphere. The island of St. Jago, at the Cap de Verre, offers another strongly marked instance of a country which any one would have expected to find most healthy, being very much the contrary. 
I have described the bare and open plains as supporting, during a few weeks after the rainy season, a thin vegetation which directly withers away and dries up. At this period the air appears to become quite poisonous, both natives and foreigners often being affected with violent fevers. On the other hand, the Galapagos archipelago, in the Pacific, with a similar soil, and periodically subject to the same process of vegetation, is perfectly healthy. Humboldt has observed that, under the torrid zone, the smallest marshes are the most dangerous, being surrounded, as at Veracruz and Cartagena, with an arid and sandy soil, which raises the temperature of the ambient air. On the coast of Peru, however, the temperature is not hot to any excessive degree, and perhaps in consequence the intermittent fevers are not of the most malignant order. In all unhealthy countries the greatest risk is run by sleeping on shore. Is this owing to the state of the body during sleep, or to a greater abundance of miasma at such times? It appears certain that those who stay on board a vessel, though anchored at only a short distance from the coast, generally suffer less than those actually on shore. On the other hand, I have heard of one remarkable case where a fever broke out among the crew of a man-of-war some hundred miles off the coast of Africa, and at the same time one of those fearful periods of death commenced at Sierra Leone. Footnote. A similar interesting case is recorded in the Madras Medical Quarterly Journal, 1839, page 340. Dr. Ferguson, in his admirable paper, see ninth volume of Edinburgh Royal Transactions, shows clearly that the poison is generated in the drying process, and hence that dry, hot countries are often the most unhealthy. End footnote. No state in South America, since the Declaration of Independence, has suffered more from anarchy than Peru. At the time of our visit, there were four chiefs in arms contending for supremacy in the government. If one succeeded in becoming for a time very powerful, the others coalesced against him. But no sooner were they victorious, than they were again hostile to each other. The other day, at the anniversary of the independence, high mass was performed, the president partaking of the sacrament. During the Te Deum Laudamus, instead of each regiment displaying the Peruvian flag, a black one with death's head was unfurled. Imagine a government, under which such a scene could be ordered on such an occasion, to be typical of their determination of fighting to death. This state of affairs happened at a time very unfortunately for me, as I was precluded from taking any excursions much beyond the limits of the town. The barren island of St. Lorenzo, which forms the harbour, was nearly the only place where one could walk securely. The upper part, which is upwards of one thousand feet in height, during this season of the year, winter, comes within the lower limit of the clouds, and in consequence an abundant cryptogramic vegetation and a few flowers cover the summit. On the hills near Lima, at a height but little greater, the ground is carpeted with moss, and beds of beautiful yellow lilies called amanques, indicates a very much greater degree of humidity than at a corresponding height at Iquique. Proceeding northward of Lima, the climate becomes damper, till on the banks of the Guayaquil, nearly under the equator, we find the most luxuriant forests. The change, however, from the sterile coast of Peru to that fertile land, is described as taking place rather abruptly in the latitude of Cape Blanco, two degrees south of Guayaquil. Callao is a filthy, ill-built, small seaport. The inhabitants, both here and at Lima, present every imaginable shade of mixture between European, Negro, and Indian blood. They appear a depraved, drunken set of people. The atmosphere is loaded with foul smells, and that peculiar one which may be perceived in almost every town within the tropics was here very strong. 
The fortress, which withstood Lord Cochrane's long siege, has an imposing appearance. But the President, during our stay, sold the brass guns, and proceeded to dismantle parts of it. The reason assigned was that he had not an officer to whom he could trust so important a charge. He himself had good reason for thinking so, as he had obtained the presidentship by rebelling while in charge of this same fortress. After we left South America he paid the penalty in the usual manner by being conquered, taken prisoner, and shot. Lima stands on a plain in a valley, formed during the gradual retreat of the sea. It is seven miles from Callao, and is elevated five hundred feet above it but from the slope being very gradual, the road appears absolutely level, so that when at Lima it is difficult to believe one has ascended even one hundred feet. Humboldt has remarked on this singularly deceptive case. Steep barren hills rise like islands from the plain, which is divided by straight mud-walls into large green fields. In these scarcely a tree grows, excepting a few willows, and an occasional clump of bananas and of oranges. The city of Lima is now in a wretched state of decay. The streets are nearly unpaved, and heaps of filth are piled up in all directions, where the black gallinazos, tame as poultry, pick up bits of carrion. The houses have generally an upper story, built on account of the earthquakes of plastered woodwork, but some of the old ones, which are now used by several families, are immensely large, and would rival in suites of apartments the most magnificent in any place. Lima, the city of the kings, must formerly have been a splendid town. The extraordinary number of churches gives it, even at the present day, a peculiar and striking character, especially when viewed from a short distance. One day I went out with some merchants to hunt in the immediate vicinity of the city. Our sport was very poor, but I had an opportunity of seeing the ruins of one of the ancient Indian villages, with its mound like a natural hill in the centre. The remains of houses, enclosures, irrigating streams, and burial mounds, scattered over this plain, cannot fail to give one a high idea of the condition and number of the ancient population. When their earthenware, woollen clothes, utensils of elegant forms cut out of the hardest rocks, tools of copper, ornaments of precious stones, palaces, and hydraulic works are considered, it is impossible not to respect the considerable advance made by them in the arts of civilization. The burial mounds, called wakas, are really stupendous, although in some places they appear to be natural hills encased and modelled. There is also another and very different class of ruins, which possesses some interest, namely those of old Callao, overwhelmed by the great earthquake of 1746, and its accompanying wave. The destruction must have been more complete even than at Talcahuano. Quantities of shingle almost conceal the foundations of the walls, and vast masses of brickwork appear to have been whirled about like pebbles by the retiring waves. It has been stated that the land subsided during this memorable shock. I could not discover any proof of this, yet it seems far from improbable, for the form of the coast must certainly have undergone some change since the foundation of the old town, as no people in their senses would willingly have chosen for their building-place the narrow spit of shingle on which the ruins now stand. Since our voyage, Monsieur Chudy has come to the conclusion, by the comparison of old and modern maps, that the coast both north and south of Lima has certainly subsided. On the island of San Lorenzo there are very satisfactory proofs of elevation within a recent period. This, of course, is not opposed to the belief of a small sinking of the ground having subsequently taken place. The side of this island fronting the Bay of Gallao is worn into three obscure terraces, 
the lower one of which is covered by a bed a mile in length, almost wholly composed of shells of eighteen species, now living in the adjoining sea. The height of this bed is eighty-five feet. Many of the shells are deeply corroded, and have a much older and more decayed appearance than those at the height of five hundred or six hundred feet on the coast of Chile. These shells are associated with much common salt, a little sulphate of lime, both probably left by the evaporation of the spray, as the land slowly rose, together with sulphate of soda and muriate of lime. They rest on fragments of the underlying sandstone, and are covered by a few inches thick of detritus. The shells higher up on this terrace could be traced scaling off in flakes and falling into an impalpable powder, and on an upper terrace, at the height of one hundred and seventy feet, and likewise at some considerably higher points, I found a layer of saline powder of exactly similar appearance, and lying in the same relative position. I have no doubt that this upper layer originally existed as a bed of shells, like that on the eighty-five feet ledge but it does not now contain even a trace of organic structure. The powder has been analysed for me by Mr. T. Reeks. It consists of sulphates and muriates, both of lime and soda, with very little carbonate of lime. It is known that common salt and carbonate of lime, left in a mass for some time together, partly decompose each other, though this does not happen with small quantities in solution. As the half-decomposed shells in the lower parts are associated with much common salt, together with some of the saline substances composing the upper saline layer, and as these shells are corroded and decayed in a remarkable manner, I strongly suspect that this double decomposition has here taken place. The resultant salts, however, ought to be carbonate of soda and muriate of lime. The latter is present, but not the carbonate of soda. Hence, I am led to imagine that by some unexplained means the carbonate of soda becomes changed into the sulphate. It is obvious that the saline layer could not have been preserved in any country in which abundant rain occasionally fell. On the other hand, this very circumstance, which at first sight appears so highly favourable to the long preservation of exposed shells, has probably been the indirect means, through the common salt not having been washed away, of their decomposition and early decay. I was much interested by finding on the terrace, at the height of eighty-five feet, embedded amidst the shells, and much sea-drifted rubbish, some bits of cotton thread, plaited rush, and the head of a stalk of Indian corn. I compared these relics with similar ones taken out of the wakas, or old Peruvian tombs, and found them identical in appearance. On the mainland, in front of San Lorenzo, near Bellavista, there is an extensive and level plain, about a hundred feet high, of which the lower part is formed of alternating layers of sand and impure clay, together with some gravel, and the surface, to the depth of from three to six feet, of a reddish loam, containing a few scattered sea-shells and numerous small fragments of coarse red earthenware, more abundant at certain spots than at others. At first I was inclined to believe that this superficial bed, from its wide extent and smoothness, must have been deposited beneath the sea but I afterwards found in one spot that it lay on an artificial floor of round stones. It seems, therefore, most probable that at a period when the land stood at a lower level there was a plain very similar to that now surrounding Callao, which, being protected by a shingle beach, is raised but very little above the level of the sea. This plain, with its underlying red clay beds, I imagine that the Indians manufactured their earthen vessels and that, during some violent earthquake, the sea broke over the beach, and converted the plain into a temporary lake, as happened round Callao in 1713 and 1746. 
The water would then have deposited mud, containing fragments of pottery from the kilns, more abundant at some spots than at others, and shells from the sea. This bed, with fossil earthenware, stands at about the same height with the shells on the lower terrace of San Lorenzo, in which the cotton thread and other relics were embedded. We may safely conclude that within the Indo-human period there has been an elevation, as before alluded to, of more than eighty-five feet, for some little elevation must have been lost by the coast having subsided since the old maps were engraved. At Valparaiso, although in the two hundred and twenty years before our visit the elevation cannot have exceeded nineteen feet, yet subsequently to 1817 there has been a rise, partly insensible and partly by a start during the shock of 1822, of ten or eleven feet. The antiquity of the Indo-human race here, judging by the eighty-five feet rise of the land since the relics were embedded, is the more remarkable, as on the coast of Patagonia, when the land stood about the same number of feet lower, the Macruchenia was a living beast. But as the Patagonian coast is some way distant from the Cordillera, the rising there may have been slower than here. At Bahia Blanca, the elevation has been only a few feet since the numerous gigantic quadrupeds were there entombed. And, according to the generally received opinion, when these extinct animals were living, man did not exist. But the rising of that part of the coast of Patagonia is perhaps no way connected with the Cordillera, but rather with the line of old volcanic rocks in Banda Oriental, so that it may have been infinitely slower than on the shores of Peru. All these speculations, however, must be vague, for who will pretend to say that there may not have been several periods of subsidence, intercalated, between the movements of elevation? For we know that along the whole coast of Patagonia there have certainly been many and long pauses in the upward action of the elevatory forces. End of chapter 16, part 3